Amen. Well, this morning we have the very great privilege of um, having uh, Peg McCormick with us this morning to share on our next beatitude that we're going to be learning about. And I'm just thankful for Peg and her unique perspective and what she brings to the table as a teacher. Um, Marilyn, would you come pray for her this morning, please, as we prepare to receive from her? Heavenly Father, we love who you are and your revelation to us and your Son and the Holy Spirit that you have given to teach us the deep things of God. Thank you for your spirit. And now, in Jesus' name, release your spirit afresh. May your anointing fall upon our sister, God. And may the words from her mouth be your words, God, and anything that is not of you, that it would fall to the ground. And may the anointing of of those words go forth to hit our hearts in the way that would um, bring fruition to your kingdom individually and corporately in jesus name we trust you god and we open our hearts to you holy spirit in jesus name amen so this is my biggest classroom ever (laughs) when i was preparing for this message the lord said just be a teacher peg that's what you are so uh, if, if he's going to have me teach to the largest group I've ever spoken to, I'm glad that it's you. I'm glad that, I'm glad that it's your faces. So hello, family. <laughs> Hi. I'm going to start with a story. And I asked permission before I told this story so I can use her name. It's about Grace, my daughter. My, I have five children. Grace is my youngest. And she's in her first year of college at Bethel University. And I'm a professor at Bethel University, so she gets to come to my office to visit. And two weeks ago, after a week of feeling pretty good about being a student and being excited about classes, um, I found her sitting at my desk in my office in tears. She had just come out of her business class and showed me a mathematical equation that she was supposed to know how to calculate, and it went something like this, and this is not the calculation for you business majors, but I'm trying to like regenerate the complexity and the terror of this equation, so listen to this. Okay. The customer's first installment is half of the original price. The cu- no, the customer makes a purchase and redeems an offer of 20% off the first shipment. His first installment is half of the original price plus the 20%, but his second payment is not eligible for the 20% discount. What percentage of the original price was covered by the first payment? And Grace comes from a family that really struggles with math. (laughs) So her confidence was shot, and she was completely afraid that she might not be a successful college student. So I was asking her, well, how are your other uh, classes going, and what kind of scores or grades are you getting? And she said, I don't know. I'm afraid to look. So I asked, have any of your assignments actually been received or returned yet? And uh, she said, well, probably, but... I'm afraid to go to my P.O. box to see what's there. What if I'm already failing? So I've learned that my daughter needs me to listen before I fix things. So I listened, and when she was done, I said, do you know where your P.O. box is? (laughs) No. (laughs) And in this rush of compassion, because I just finished graduate school doing my doctoral work, in 2009, and 
I remember the anxiety of being a student, the anxiety of not measuring up, the anxiety of failing and not wanting to face the grades. So I said, um, come on, we're gonna go down there together. Let's do this together. So um, I knew where the PO boxes were and I said, I'll, I'll show you where your box is and we're gonna do this. So we took the elevator from the fourth floor going down, down, down into Hagstrom Center to the mail room where the student mailboxes are. And she found her little mailbox and pulled out her neatly arranged planner to find her locker combination. And as she opened the lock, I could feel the sweat coming down my back. And I'm going, Lord, please, she needs encouragement today. And Grace pulls out the single assignment that has been returned in her box, and we're looking at it feverishly, like scanning, like, okay, okay, you got minus two here, okay, well, that's not bad, and okay, and okay, we'll turn the page, and how are you doing there? Okay, um, nothing, okay, and I'm thinking, well, wow, there's not even a smiley face on there. Who is this prof? <laughs> Don't they know that she needs encouragement? So I'm going, okay, all I see is a minus two. It's gotta be like minus two out of what? So you got 13, 13 out of 15? Okay. That's good, right? It's good. And she's going, but what if, what if the next one isn't good? And what if I fail? And what if it's, the rest of them aren't good? And I'm going, grace for today and bright hope for tomorrow. It's like, it's one day at a time. And, and so um, we all have places we'd rather avoid. Is this loud up here for you? And so we all have places we'd rather avoid. And the elevator ride from the fourth floor down to the basement is like walking into a cold swimming pool, for those of you who don't like that. I don't like that. And sometimes we say, not today. I'm not doing this today. Or there's got to be another way. Can't there just be a, another way? Or I, I don't want to go there. And today we're going to talk about going there. Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are they who mourn. Says, if we go there, we'll be blessed. But couldn't there just be another way? Couldn't there just be another way? And there isn't. So today we're going to talk about grief and mourning. And we've all been there. So if experience gives credibility, then we're all credentialed to talk about what it is to mourn. And my experience with grief and mourning is unique to me in my life. So I can only talk about this as I know it. And there are many forms of grief. Many of you have experienced loss and deep and disappointments in ways that I've never known. And I want to make clear that I don't stand here as an expert or to say that I know it all because there are some of you here today who have known losses that I can't imagine, horrific losses. And I'm also gonna say that of the many forms of grief that we can experience, that the grief of death is not the worst kind of grief. To be really honest, death has not been the seat of my deepest grief experiences. And I have a feeling this might be some, true for some of you as well. So as I was working to bring this message together, I poured through commentaries on Matthew 5.4. When you're a teacher, you're so concerned that you're saying everything accurately, that you have all the information you need, 
I wanted you to know everything there was to know about this verse, but I only have, well, um, I have like 48 minutes, not 40 minutes. Awesome, okay. <laughs> I have more time than I thought I would have. So I'm pouring through all these commentaries, and I'll tell you, there's enough interpretations and opinions about the topic of mourning to intimidate anyone from even knowing where to start with this topic. And it would be really easy for me to, to take a path that would really offend people. I could offend you with any direction that I take with this discussion. So I think it's amazing and kind of interesting that mourning and grief are not, um, they're not mutually exclusive. They are so connected to everything else that we're talking about this month. It's so interconnected that it's hard to know where to begin and end, but I needed to have a beginning and an end. So I'm coming in midstream. Andrew got us started last week, and I'm going to take, take you for a, a ways, but this isn't the end of the story today. This is a piece of what this is about. So I don't bring you the beginning and the end to this. But the commentaries tell us that there are two central avenues of grief, if we can just get simple here. First, um, from what I've read in the commentaries, there's circumstantial grief. And, and this is the, the type of grief that comes through loss or death or traumatic experiences or events that directly or indirectly change the course of our lives. And the second type of grief is spiritual grief. And that, incur, that occurs when we experience the internal despair of our brokenness and sin. And the Lord promises consolation in both cases. But as I anticipated speaking to you today, I struggled to understand how the Holy Spirit was going to have me address the two in one different mess, in the same message. Because these two types of grief seem to me like polar opposites. And I have a mercy orientation in me. And so the nurturer, the mercy nurturer, empathic mother in me wants to look out of all of you. And naturally, I want to deliver a message that will acknowledge the losses that I know have occurred among you. And there have been recent deaths and heartache in this house. And it would be so easy to just talk about that today. It would be easier if all I had to do today was to remind you of the promises spoken over your pain, that you'll be comforted, that Jesus, a man acquainted with grief, promises that you're not alone. And that's true. But that's not my job entirely today. It would be easy, too, if I could just tell my story to share with you about how God took care of our family when he took our daddy home. But I would only be telling you part of the story that way. So today I'm responsible to tell you the whole story. And I'm not a pastor, so I'm not calling this a sermon. And I'm reading a lot of this because there's a lot to say. And if left to my own, I would speak in circles and you wouldn't be out of here till 2 o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> so you'll be grateful that I'm working with clarity here. We all know both types of grief. Most of us have memory of our darkest season of rebellion against God. I was almost going to have all of you like look around at each other's faces to see that you are not alone in having a day like that and having memory like that. That binds us all together. I won't make you do that. So most of us have a memory of our darkest season of rebellion and we all have a story also that we could call the worst day 
of my life. And you can't have a worst day of your life without residual grief. And because death is not always associated with the worst day of my life, the grief that follows the worst day of your life can originate from a variety of circumstances. And this is, this is the teacher part. This is when I shift to be a teacher here. First, it's really important to me that you understand that there's a difference between grief and mourning. They're not the same thing. Grief is a noun. Grief is a thing. It's a psychological, emotional, and physiological response to a devastating event that in most cases is accompanied by traumatic loss. Grief is involuntary. It will happen to everyone, and no person who lives a full adult life can escape it. In 2 Peter 5.12, and I don't have a PowerPoint tonight because we were cooking last night. There wasn't time, so I hope you're okay with that. But if you want my notes, you can have them. 1 Peter 5.12, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We should not be strangers to grief. We shouldn't be surprised at this. And mourning is a verb. Mourning is an active process, and it's a necessary response to grief. Mourning is voluntary. Mourning is a choice. And we will all know grief, but not all of us who have experienced, not all of us are going to experience a full course of mourning. And it's my hope that this message will confirm the hard work that some of you have done to willingly mourn and work through grief. And I hope this message encourages those who are mourning right now, today, and most of all, I hope that this message helps to unlock unfinished or stuck places in those who need to mourn over any form of grief. I hope this message communicates the necessity of mourning and it might actually give permission to those who have wondered whether some of the grief they've experienced is valid or even worthy of mourning. In the third chapter of Ecclesiastes, and I'm not gonna read all of it, we read that there is a time for everything, a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And as I progress through the story, I'm going to be sharing you, um, sharing with you um, the story of my husband's death. Gil Gayton and I were married for 29 years when he was escorted into his heavenly home on September 20th, 2010. I met Gil when I was 21 years old. We were married after only four months. And then we raised five extraordinary children, all of them to near adulthood. <laughs> They're not quite there yet. A lot of them are, but we weren't quite done when he died. Now, I want those of you who don't know me, though, that right here sits my new husband. He is the husband of my second youth. <laughs> and the story of our coming together is amazing, and it holds every cliffhanging event you will ever read about in the story of Ruth and Boaz. And it's a great story, but it's for another time. Maybe a woman's retreat. <laughs> so my new husband sits in the room while I recall events that took place around the death of my first husband who died not even five years ago. And this would not be possible 
without the open-handed grace of God on me. And this would not be possible had I not been able to face the work of grief head on. And I'm not boasting about anything out of my own capacity here. I was a mess. But only God could have provided the grace, the space, and the time to mourn fully and well. Last week, Andrew Gross delivered a message about the blessing of being poor in spirit. In essence, it was the poverty of spirit. And that title is a fitting segue into the first part of my story. In October 2009, while driving home, I got a word from the Lord. It was as close to an audible voice that I've ever heard from God. I was in the car driving up south on Highway 52 going toward Invergrove Heights where we lived, up the hill, that little kind of chugga-chugga hill just after the Lafayette Bridge. And I remember that God said, I'm going to bring you through a season of poverty wherein you will have to trust me more than you have ever trusted me before. And then, because God knows me, he said, and it won't be your fault. Because God knew that a word like that, that being who I am, I would have taken the weight of that and the guilt of that and the, the responsibility for that on my own shoulders and, and been a wreck before I even got home. So God was really clear, this will not be your fault. And I said, well, Gil, no, it's not my fault. <laughs> it's, like, it's okay. Let me get some water here. I was struck with the clarity of God's voice. Normally, I would ponder and process something like this before sharing it, but in this case, I went home and immediately told Gil what I'd heard. I remember walking him up the stairs, shutting the door, sitting him down and saying, I just got a word from the Lord and this can't wait. Assuming it was going to be financial poverty, we began to get our house in order. We looked at our debt, we looked at our giving, we looked at spending, and we began literally actually to make preparations to sell our house. At the time, we had an extended family of 11 people living under the same roof, and it was going well. (laughs) We wanted to continue to live in community together, so we began to look for a place in the city where we could all live and reduce our cost of living. We started a prayer journal and began to pray as a family on Sunday nights all together, getting as many of those 11 together as we could on Sundays. We girded up and waited for what was coming. And during that time, God also began to do some really deep work in me and Gil. When you're married for a really long time and you're busy working and raising a lot of children, a lot of important relational and spiritual maintenance can be neglected. It doesn't mean you're bad on spiritual people. It just means it's really easy to get into a chronic state of reactivity with all the complex things that happen to parents who are in charge of raising a small village with a population of six adults, three children, two babies, two cats, and a dog. And when life moves that fast, it's easy to put off the hard stuff, the neat stuff. There isn't time to stop and ask all the time for a do-over. Everyone goes to bed at different times, wakes up at different times, and lives on different schedules. And with multiple variables going on in a house that size, you can expect that life's going to get messy. And messy life is fertile soil for offense and resentment. And it's easy to stuff things and avoid conflict when you're a big family in a big house. There are plenty of distractions and plenty of places to hide. 
During the months after God spoke to me in the car, we had to look at the hard stuff in order to assess what needed to be fixed so that when this thing, this poverty thing, hit us, we'd be able to ride the storm. Now, over the years and leading to this time, I had become aware of a tight ball in my gut. It seemed to, like, have a life of its own. It was full of of adrenaline and pressure and tension. It was about the size of a grapefruit, I remember, and I knew it needed to come out. I had been reading a book about the danger of storing up offenses, and the book talked about how easy it is to store up accusations and grievances toward others. And that the offenses we stuff and don't talk about are the most toxic. That stuff gets stored up in here and it putrefies. That ball in my gut was toxic waste and it needed to come out. So I made an appointment with God for 10 o'clock on Wednesday night in my home office. (laughs) But I set that time aside and I didn't know when it would end. But my door was shut. And I was determined that I would not leave that room until God God dealt with me and dissolved that knotted-up thing that sat up under my ribs. We met, and I started writing. I read through lists of things I needed to confess, my stored-up griefs. I didn't want to miss anything. I dealt with unresolved woundedness, regrets, anger over things I felt had been unfair, missed opportunities, and and, uh, unforgiveness toward my husband. I dealt with regret over ways that our family had become fragmented. I realized that I had confessed forgiveness, but that I was still hanging on to my rights to woundedness. This was deep spiritual grief, and I invited God to search every hidden place in my heart. It was a dark night of the soul. Dark. I had lived with the grief of my spiritual condition for years, and it was time to mourn, time to go there. I'm going to read a psalm here to you. Turn to Psalm 32. We're going to be referencing that a couple of times. And I'm really surprised that this is the psalm that God gave me to preach out of today. But it is. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in those spirit and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time where you may be, when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. 
It's likely that this is the psalm that David wrote after he confessed his sin with Bathsheba. That was Psalm 52. He describes the blessing of forgiveness that comes after chastening and confession. In verse 3, he says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. And this is grief. Remember that grief has its way. Grief will have its way with you. And God let David feel the grief of his, of his sin physically and emotionally. And then in verse 5, David says that when he confessed, God forgave, and then came the comfort. And then came the comfort. In verse 10 and 11, many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad, rejoice, and shout for joy. And that means it's really good to have things right with God. <laughs> and I also think that, that means blessed are those who mourn. So by 2 p.m. or 2 a.m. in the morning, it was over, and I was exhausted. My flesh died, the pride, excuses, the self-righteousness, and the blaming. It all died in one night. I was delivered of those wounds, and they did not return. In fact, after that, I almost, I feel, and I still feel now, that I walk in this grace that makes it difficult for me to store up or even hold offenses. It's like my capacity for offense never came back to the degree that I was able to hold offense before. And I can tell you now, I still stand in that, and it really amazes me because I have lots of reasons to be offended. <laughs> and, and it doesn't hook me like it, like it did. That was awesome. Um, so I was delivered of those wounds. I was mercifully released. I came out raw. Pink skin where I had scales. I forgave, and I was forgiven. Through August of, of summer, summer 2010, Gil and I spent several eating, uh, evenings on the deck having brave conversations. There was more confessing, more forgiving, more cleaning up and setting things right. We just worked to get the rest, the rest of our house in relational and practical order. And we were still waiting and wondering whether we had survived that season of poverty or if there was something else still ahead. Gil was a cooking instructor at Le Cordon Bleu. And in mid-September, he came to me and said he was having trouble walking from his classroom to the car without being short of breath and having to rest. Thinking that was odd, we called his heart doctor for a next-day appointment. And Gil was excited to call into work for a sick day. We spent that evening as a family, eating homemade pizza and staying up late with a movie. Next day, the clinic suspected heart-related issues, and even though nothing was really wrong, they sent us to the emergency room at United Hospital. His doctor found nothing unordinary, but admitted Gil for the night so they could observe and do a stress test in the morning. That Saturday, I had to teach a class, and I was wrapping up, and then a call came through which I had to ignore until the end of class. I got into the car, and while headed toward the hospital to pick up Gil, I listened to the, vo the voicemail on the way. It was the doctor telling me that he had important news about my husband and that I was to call right away. Still not alarmed, I called and learned that things had not gone well with his stress test. In that moment, I thought I'd heard that he had a heart attack. 
Now, Gil and I had been through hard things. A history of 29 years prepares you for almost anything, and frankly, I was gravely concerned, but I was not alarmed yet. Heart, uh, heart attacks happen. Wives do heart, wives, if, you're, if you've been a wife for a while, you know how to do this stuff. I'm thinking, okay, eight weeks of recovery, we can do heart attack, we can get through this. But when I got to the hospital, I learned that he was stable, but that he was actually on life support from a cardiac arrest, which is different from a heart attack. Over the next 48 hours, they cooled his body to give his brain a chance to recover. And during that time, we learned that his aortic valve, the one that had been replaced four years earlier, had calcified. And they were ready to take him in for a second replacement um, with the surgery, but first they needed to wake him and check his neurological signs. The warming was scheduled for 2.30 a.m. Monday morning. By then, family had traveled from out of state to be there when he woke up. As we gathered in the middle of the night, one by one arriving, we heard a code blue over the hospital intercom. It was, I was rushed to Gill's room and saw a crash team resuscitating him from a second cardiac arrest. Over the next two hours, he crashed three more times, and at 4.30 a.m., the doctor called the time of his death. Gill was gone. And our season of poverty began in that hour. And I will tell you that grief comes first. Grief happens. And it starts with shock, merciful shock, because the weight of sudden distress would kill us if we had to bear it all at once. Physiologically, our brains, our adrenal glands, every unnecessary body function either lets go or shores up, but it's not business as usual. Shock enables our bodies to be selective about what we respond to. That's the robot state. We get through the wake, the funeral, and the arrangements, but digestion shuts down, we're unable to eat, unable to sleep. We become hypervigilant, especially if there are children in the house. Shock wears away like Novocaine after a dentist appointment, though. And searing pain begins to poke through, and waves of panic, claustrophobia, and disbelief come one after another. Amazingly, tears are not yet about the loss, but a response to the disequilibrium of being ripped and thrust into traumatic separation. I remember waking up in the night suddenly and thinking, he's not coming back. He's really not ever coming back. Our physiological response to grief can include insomnia, muscle aches, chest pain, dizziness, brain fog. Even our taste for food is dulled. Grief causes visceral, cellular, and neurological upheaval. And I will not minimize this with you. I don't, I don't mean for this to be pretty. We will experience deep disappointments and sudden change in life, but grief is radical. It changes you forever. Don't confuse grief with the stress and disruption of everyday life. We bounce back from that stuff. Grief leaves a permanent mark, and it's a good thing because later I'm going to talk about how grief cannot be anything less than that. We all have to go there. So what does that look like and where does it come from? Grief can come from loss, the death of people that we love, the loss of our health, um, or our physical or mental capacity. Grief can come from change, and loss is often accompanied by change, but those changes come in our environment, uh, a change in our position in the family, maybe changes in our work and ministry, changes in our capacity. There might be a change of circumstances that brings life from the familiar to the foreign and the unfamiliar. 
Grief can come as the result of just absence. With divorce, children moving away from home, death or relocation, we experience grief because significant people have left us and are not, no longer around us. And we can feel an absence of peace and sometimes even the absence of God. Grief can come through regret, through choices made that impacted the flow and the direction of our lives, actions or the failure to act that allowed things to happen that were destructive or life-altering. Grief also occurs with the sting of conviction. We have to face our own lack and depravity before we can be restored. There is immediate grief and anticipatory grief. Some, event, some events that produce grief are unexpected and come with no warning. And in other cases, grief begins as we anticipate loss and change. The term mourning is a verb. It's an action word. It's work. It's dynamic and, act and active, and when we talk about mourning, we have to acknowledge all of those things that are experienced when grief occurs. We can mourn privately and corporately. The earth groans, and as the earth groans, we groan. Women who experience childbirth know that they have to give in to the last stages of childbirth. It's not good to do birth alone. That's why we have midwives. And we shouldn't do death alone either. Corporate mourning is just as necessary as corporate celebration. That's why we have funerals. In fact, in Jeremiah 9, chapter 9, verses 17 and 18, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the mourning women that they may come and send for the wailing women that they may come. Let them make haste and take up a wailing for us that our eyes may shed tears and our eyelids flow with water. There's a book called Mourner, Mother, Midwife, Reimagining God's Delivering Presence in the Old Testament by Juliana Claysons. And she writes here, wailing women are called to lead the women in expression of grief in response to the national tragedy that saw the destruction of Zion. These women who are called to raise a dirge over us are literally called wise women. This can be translated as skilled women, suggesting that the art of mourning is a skill that has to be learned. The role of the wailing woman constituted a professional trade that required training. On the appropriate occasion, a funeral or a national tragedy like the one that forms the backdrop of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 9, wailing women not only had to be able to draw on the reservoir of lament handed down through the generations, but they also had to adapt these laments to suit the particular need of the current situation. Their laments represent the community's response in the face of extreme trauma. As we mourn, we also might identif be identifying with the suffering of others. We don't always mourn our own losses. Sometimes we carry the weight of another's loss as if it were our own. We experience empathic grief when we see others walking through pain that we're familiar with, or when we see people we love trapped in repetitive patterns of dysfunction. Some of us mourn for cities and nations. There's a prophetic mourning. For years, leading to the fall of Jerusalem, followed by the Babylonian exile, the prophet Jeremiah lived through storms of hostility and crushing doubt, and his writings are full of examples of mourning that come through the, the identification of external suffering. The next point I want to make is that our mourning can be specific or ambiguous. 
Mourning is not always the result of loss. Spiritual poverty comes out of a profound sense of being incomplete. We're aware that something is absent, and we find ourselves with no capacity to retrieve or recapture what we had, or to go after what we never had. Mourning can feel ambiguous when the waiting and the emptiness and the lack are outside of our own power. We can't have what we long for, and we can't save what has died. The ambiguity occurs when we're not quite sure that we've actually lost anything. It's just that we know there's something painfully absent, and it's in that place of powerlessness that even our undefined mourning has to happen. It's that place that God longs to enter into with us so that his comfort and the impartation of restorative hope and joy could be actualized and felt. David wrote about experiencing hope and joy in Psalm 32. When God longs to be our hiding place, he stands ready to preserve us from trouble and surround us with songs of deliverance. Mourning can be grief, can be brief or extended. Grief will have its way with you, and you can do the work of mourning now or later, but grief will have its way. If you are given over to the inevitability of a mourning process, you might find that grief comes in waves. Our family called those waves grief pockets, and we never knew when they were going to come or what would trigger them. I remember that grocery shopping was hard for me afterwards. It's like you have to start doing things that are normal, you have to start going and running errands and bringing food home. I remember one day grocery shopping and walking into Rainbow Grocery Store, and it was just, just days, not even weeks after the death, but it's like we needed to get some food in the house. And I'm going in, trying to do something that I'd done before, and it didn't feel the same, and I'm walking to the store. The store doesn't even look like the same place. And I remember walking in, standing in like, I don't know, peanut butter jelly or something, and I hear this song over the intercom, and it was... Anything you want, you got it. Anything you need, you got it. Anything at all, you got it, baby. It was God singing over me in the grocery store. And I wept. I wept. It was beautiful. Reading my journal, we had good days and bad, bad days, and over time, the good days came more frequently than the bad days. Um, while I needed relief from the weight of pain, it was weird because I felt like I don't want the grief to be over because I was afraid if I stopped grieving or when the morning is over that Gil would disappear. It's like I need to keep grieving so that he's not really gone. And, then a whole month would come that held more layers of change and adjustment. And if you're a family, no one mourns at the same time or in the same way. There was silence and wailing, talking and remembering, and then feeble attempts to attach to something normal like housework and errands. In August 2013, just quite a bit later, I wrote this to a friend. It was actually a text message, believe it or not. Grief is resolute confidence and agony at the same time. It's surety and free fall. In the hours after Gil's death, I remember feeling as though I was suspended in the, in the churning waters of a deep lake 
not afraid of drowning, not afraid for my life, but being unable to distinguish where the surface of the water was. It was like flailing in slow motion, out of control yet surrounded by the firm compression of buoyance on all sides. And it was there, while submerged, that I could feel the presence of God. And I found that he was all around me, everywhere. And I was not afraid to breathe. The length of my mourning was impacted by what the Lord allowed me to experience during Gil's death. He let me see it in both the natural and the spiritual realms. He prepared Gil and I months in advance. Healing and restoration took place in the weeks prior. Gil and I were going to marriage counseling. The first session, I left mad. The second session, we both left with an awareness of our blind spots. I was still mad. But then I had that encounter with the Lord, and I was no longer carrying around a toxic grapefruit. We went for the third time. When we came to that mark, that hour and 15-minute mark, the therapist says, so... Now what else do you guys want to work through? And we looked at each other. We're good. There wasn't anything left unsaid between us. Seriously, God brought healing so that we wouldn't be entangled by regret. God is so good. So my grief was over the loss of a man who was my husband and the father of my children, but I'm so grateful that the freedom of repentance and confession came before he left. My grief was pure and specific, it wasn't muddied by unresolved guilt or unanswered questions. Because you know what? The day comes. The day always comes. The day comes. So do the work. Gil's day came, and it came fast with little warning. Deal with your offenses now. Confess your ugliness now, and stop avoiding the hard conversations, because the day always comes. In the last hour of Gil's life, and through repeated cardiac arrests, God hovered over me closely. And he gave me the ability to see what was happening in the spiritual realm. With each code blue, I progressed from praying the prayers of a wife fighting for her husband's life to a fierce desire to be in perfect alignment with God's sovereign will. And he let me see Gil's passage. He let me see the heavenly escort. A seven-foot angel took both of our hands, and the angel and Gil stared straight into a realm that I could not see, though I was there. I asked Gil, is this your day? Is this really happening today? Do you want to go? And he never looked back at me. He had just spent three days in, in direct contact with his Savior. Who would want to return after that? And then my declaration to God became, I trust you to the last minute. I trust you to the last minute. Because God let me see, I was able to let go. Before they called his time of death, I was already looking up through the ceiling tiles into heaven saying, you do all things well. You do all things well. Without intervention from God months earlier, I believe that beautiful passage would have been impossible. 
because we did the hard stuff of repentance months before. I wasn't leaning over my dying husband saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry if you could only know. I'm sorry I never said what needed to be said. And this is the part I wasn't sure if I was going to cross out of my message, but I'm going to say it. Because this is very intimate. I stayed with Gil, with his body. Remember, everyone was there, and I needed to be alone with him. And all I needed to do, Pastor Jim was so awesome, all I needed to do was look over, and he just knew. And he shooed everyone out and pulled the curtains, and I was alone. I stayed with him until I didn't need to stay there anymore. It was the purest, most intimate moment of my entire life with Gil Gaten. Wives, when your husbands leave this earth, stay with him as long as you can afterward. If you can stay with him. Don't let anyone rush you away from your husband as his spirit is leaving. I'm not so sure it happens instantly. And you don't want to miss a moment of that sweet, incredible ascent. Don't miss that. I'm going to read from Psalm 40. This is read at Gil's funeral, and this is really him. This is really all about he, where he was and how he stood before the Lord. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He's put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. By God's incredible design, we are capable of emotional resilience. And that's because he wants us to go there and go often. Range of emotion is a gift. People who are emotionally stuck can uh, 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 often act out with behaviors that impact and hurt those around them. Frozen grief is just like that. Frozen grief is an inflexible, hardened place of compacted sadness and brokenness that diminishes us spiritually, emotionally, and relationally. Guilt, shame, and fear has the same impact. In the same way that we can fear the work of grief, we can fear the act of confession. We're afraid of losing control, afraid of exposure, afraid of seeing things as they are. Afraid of the truth that something really is missing, something is absent, and that we are broken and incomplete. Brokenness in any form and for any reason is painful, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing. When things are broken, they're not intended to stay that way. When there is a hole or a missing piece, it means something is supposed to be there. Without resulting pain, we would not move toward restoration, people. And that is God's plan, that we move toward him and that ultimate comfort. 
I actually believe that our ability to experience grief and mourning saves our lives. Referencing Psalm 32, verses 8 and 9, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Don't be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. The sting of conviction like grief is jolting. When we mourn the consequences of our mistakes and bad choices, we are submitting ourselves to the pain of recognition. We're acknowledging that we've done something out of character, that we've grieved the Lord. This should cause weeping, and it should cause us to, desi to desire rectification. There is no earthly comfort for that kind of mourning. That's why it's so difficult. And that's also why it's so difficult to know how to come alongside those who are mourning. When the words have been said, the meals have been delivered, the consolation offered, the reality is that there is no adequate or comparable measure of comfort outside of the supernatural convalescence that we experience in the arms of Jesus. Pastor Jim told me the week after Gil died, this is work, Peg, don't try to avoid it. Acts 3.19 says, repent so that the times of refreshing can come from the presence of the Lord. There is blessing for those who are willing to do the hard work of reconstruction after devastating loss. And there are consequences for those who refuse to mourn. Can we avoid grief? No. Can we choose not to mourn? Yes. If we're in Christ, can we avoid the sting of conviction? No. The Holy Spirit would not, does not allow us to avoid the sting of conviction. We feel it, but we suppress it. Can we choose to resist the pain of self-examination and repentance? Yes. We can choose to resist that. People who resist the discomfort of grief and choose not to mourn will find themselves in constant pursuit of pain relief. And pain relief works for a while, but with each increment of counterfeit consolation, we are moved further from the reality of our emptiness and the sick condition of our soul. And it doesn't matter where the grief came from. We still have to mourn. We still have to go there to be restored. As individuals, we have to recognize that mourning is part of being a whole person. If we can't see our brokenness, if it's not acknowledged, we can't know the opposing joy. The Beatitudes have a progression, and it's intentional. They're not listed randomly. Mourning, the act of recovering from grief, is the result of a poverty of spirit. The poverty is the state, the condition. Mourning is the response, the process. And if we are to be comforted, we have to feel the loss. We need to mourn before we can know the joy of resolved grief. We have to be empty to know the satisfaction of fullness. We have to receive the no before we can know the relief of the yes. Losing Gil was a bitter loss, but in my gratitude and appreciation for my new husband, Brian, I have found the depth of my loss to be in direct proportion to the joy I have in this new life with Brian. To the depth of my grief, I've been able to experience that much joy. We are saved by hope.
In Romans 8, 18, Paul writes, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the joy that will be revealed in us. Whether we acknowledge it or not, we are in mourning together. We wait for home together. We submit to the pain of refinement together. We say goodbye to the ones who go before us. We wait for Jesus to return. We miss him. Things are not okay when someone's missing, when someone is absent. In Christ, death is both beautiful and terrible. David Martin Lloyd describes the, con the content of the Christian life as a serious happiness, not a glib, sugar-coated kind of happiness like I'm oblivious to pain and disappointment because I have the joy of the Lord kind of happiness, but it's a sober, confident hope, a holy joy, a very deep and solemn joy, a serious happiness because as believers we are aware of the price a blood-bought purchase of our souls by the crucified Christ, the one who lived and loved and mourned for us all the days of his life and lives now, having defeated death so that he could see our mourning turn to dancing. We're just going to take a moment and respond to that. Uh, I think all of us are in... There's something that Peg was sharing that Every single one of us can relate to it one way or another. You might be here and you've, you're, you're one of the ones that has the toxic grapefruit. God's Holy Spirit's coming and saying, deal with that. You may have suffered loss and you're, you're dealing with that. You may be in a place where you're, I'm good. I've, you might be the one here that's you're supposed to comfort somebody else. So we're going to take a moment. We're going to respond to that as a, as a church. As Peg and I were talking about music today, one of the things that struck me that she said is, I don't want to leave the congregation feeling heavy. And um, my heart connected with her that God wants us to focus on him. And through all of... Um, what Peg is teaching us, our declaration about God is the same, and it's that he's good and that his name should be blessed. So we're going to worship. So if you'd stand, um, we're going to declare the name of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God, the Father, of Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are afflicted with the comfort which we ourselves have been comforted by God. For we share abundantly in Christ's suffering so that so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, if we're comforted it is for your comfort what you experience when you patiently endure the same suffering that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comforts. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the word that Peg brought, God. We thank you that she is one that's able to speak with authority into, 
into this very thing, God. We thank you that we are blessed. Lord, we pray that we as a congregation, we as a church, and what it says in 2 Corinthians there, as we've received comfort, we'd be able to comfort others. God, that we would be ones that comfort the broken and hurting world around us. As we talk about favor, we extending favor to a waiting and wounding, wounded world. God, we ask that us as a congregation would be that to one another. We'd be that. We'd be the body of Christ. As we go to our workplace, as we go to home, as we go to school, as we go wherever we're going, God, that we would be, we'd be able to comfort those who mourn. God, we just ask for creative ways and ideas to do that this week in Jesus' name. Pray your blessing on, on every single person here. We go in grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Just uh, want to encourage you, the, the, the Lenten small groups, this will be a perfect opportunity. Uh, break down what we're talking about this morning on a, on a more personal level. Be, able, be an opportunity to, to minister to one another, to comfort one another, to... Uh, and if you're here this morning and, and there's something, the Holy Spirit is doing something, don't, don't leave. Like Peg was talking about, she made that appointment with the Lord. Make the appointment with him this morning. Amen. Go in grace in Jesus' name.